Welcome to Discovery with Babbitt Ranches. Discovery is all things cowboy essence, people at their best, accomplishing extraordinary achievements. Cowboy essence is defined by the character qualities we admire in others. Inspired by the cowboy culture, the code that guides Babbitt Ranches. Hi, I'm Billy Cardasco. Babbitt Ranches tries to never lose sight of the fact that we are part of a much larger community, participating with our neighbors, conservation organizations, educational institutions, government agencies, and the land itself. Borrowing from naturalist Aldo Leopold, a thing is right when it tends to preserve the integrity, stability, and beauty of the biotic community. And that's a philosophy that rings true with Babbitt's conservation philosophy today. As many of us know, Leopold was a foremost conservation ecologist of his time in the first half of the 20th century. One of our leading conservation ecologists today is Dr. Larry Stevens. With regards to climate change, northern Arizona is the premier place to study that subject. We have an elevation gradient of almost two miles from the bottom of Grand Canyon to the top of the San Francisco peaks. And so as you move across elevation, you can go to different climates. We'll hear more from him in a moment. But first, Discovery with Babbitt Ranches would like to acknowledge the Museum of Northern Arizona and the good folks out there at Highway 180 on the edge of Flagstaff who work to protect and celebrate the cultures, plants, and animals, springs in history of the Colorado Plateau. Researchers are studying fossils from two billion year old Precambrian beds to Ice Age deposits and dinosaur bones from shallow seas. They are learning how plants and animals are adapting to climatic shifts and have fascinating artifacts in their collections of prehistoric civilizations that farmed, traded, and thrived in the region. It's just extraordinary what they have going on out there and I invite you to take a look at the Museum of Northern Arizona's exhibits the next time you're in the area. You'll gain a whole new appreciation for the beauty and diversity of the Colorado Plateau. And we are very fortunate to have Dr. Larry Stevens here today with us. Dr. Larry Stevens is an evolutionary ecologist and the coordinator of the Museum of Northern Arizona's new Spring Stewardship Institute, which is dedicated to improving, understanding, and stewardship of springs ecosystems. He also serves Museum Northern Arizona as the Curator of Ecology and is the Senior Ecologist of, for Grand Canyon Wildlands Council, a conservation organization in Flagstaff. Originally from Cleveland, he received his undergraduate degree from Prescott College in 1974 and his Master's of Science in 1985 and Doctorate in Zoology in 1989, these degrees coming from Northern Arizona University. He is a longtime Colorado River whitewater guide and served as an ecologist for Grand Canyon National Park from 1988 to 1994. He has conducted extensive research on southwestern biogeography, conservation ecology, endangered and non-native species biology, as well as springs, riverine, wetlands, and dam ecology and management. He has written more than 70 scientific peer-reviewed articles, three books, and numerous popular articles on water-related resources and management in the Southwest. His recently completed co-authored book on the ecology and conservation of North American springs is widely recognized, and he is presently working on a sequel on spring stewardship. Dr. Stevens resides in Flagstaff, Arizona with his wife, Jerry, and daughter, Phoebe. Thank you, Larry, for joining me on Discovery with Babbitt Ranches. Billy, thanks so much for having me here today. It's really a pleasure to, to be able to interact with you and uh, our long association. It's just been really rewarding. You are currently are the Spring Stewardship Institute coordinator at the Museum of Northern Arizona and also the museum's curator of ecology and conservation. 
What all does that entail? Well, the mission of the museum is to preserve the artifacts and the species and document the life of the Colorado Plateau and the Colorado River ecosystem. And in that role as curator, what I do is to assemble the information on life on the Colorado Plateau, all of it. And that's a pretty big responsibility, more than I will accomplish in my lifetime, of course, but uh, we're making good headway. We've, we've got about one quarter of the species documented, specimens and with data and publications on how they're distributed, where they occur, what kinds of habitats support more or fewer species, what human impacts are on those habitats. It's a huge job, but the curatorial kind of aspect of it is just is quite thrilling for, for me as a biologist because I get to look at, evaluate, understand all these different species with all their different stories and, and life history. Are you ever on pins and needles with something new you discovered? A lot of my specimens are on pins. I, I get quite excited by finding new, new life forms that haven't been described yet. Uh, we, we've described uh, quite a few new species in the, in the landscape mostly organisms that nobody knows about, like robber flies. These are predaceous flies that whenever you're outside, there's one within 15 feet of you. It knows you're there. It disappears before you even get to see it, usually. And detecting these things and trying to document how many species we have, about 150 species so far in the landscape, of which about 20% are new to science, just one of many groups that are, are quite fascinating here. So you've had a bit of a journey to get to where you are today. About this time of year, 1974, I hiked down the Nankweep Trail to meet a uh, Museum of Northern Arizona river trip going through Grand Canyon. 12-mile hike. I should have died of heat exhaustion that day, but made it down there and encountered Steve Carruthers and, uh, and the museum trip and began a lifetime career in studying the, the ecology of, of Grand Canyon. On that trip, I was looking at insects and, uh, and birds and mammals, trapping those critters. And we spent two and a half years doing an ecological inventory of the, of the Colorado River. You had recently come from Cleveland and then out to Prescott College? Yeah, Cleveland, the city of magic, where I was born and left as quickly as I could, pretty much. <laughs> okay. And then ended up in Prescott, and you received a bachelor's in uh, ecology? I received a bachelor's of fine arts and, and biology at, at Prescott. Wow, so okay, so how does fine arts play into how you ended up being a scientist? I think every sincere naturalist has to take art, has to understand art, has to be able to see life forms for what they are, has to be able to understand how the, the parts fit together, how, the, how these organisms are, are uh, structured, and then the, the peculiarities that they, they share. So. Drawing and painting are, are fundamental to understanding how life is organized. That's terrific. From there, you uh, ended up going to NAU, coming to Flagstaff, Arizona, and, and receiving a master's in your doctorate. I attended University of Arizona first, planning on a career in, uh, in ecology down there with some really great ecologists that were working there. However, it was too far away from Grand Canyon. I, I couldn't be that far away. And NAU offered pretty promising program here, so I came up and studied with first Konslobachikov, who worked on the language of prairie dogs, and then Peter Price, who's a world-famous insect ecologist. So that would have brought you into early 90s, I suppose. Anything interesting in the early 90s that uh, continued your passion, helped develop that further? After getting my PhD in zoology, I, I uh, became the ecologist for Grand Canyon National Park. That gave me not only an opportunity to understand the Grand Canyon, but also the many neighbors that uh, the park shares, because so many of the species and the habitats run from Grand Canyon out into the surrounding landscape. 
the watersheds that feed into Grand Canyon are all part of the picture there. That gave me a, a much more regional landscape-based appreciation of the, of the region. That broader perspective of the region is largely how we met. I believe you either attended or somehow or another were knowledgeable of a presentation on a wildlands project with Reed Noss and some others. One way or another, I suppose we're inspired by that thought or that effort and brought it to uh, Flagstaff and invited a number of folks together and, and uh, started to present a vision. Tell us about that. I left the federal government because I needed a sabbatical, and they would not allow me to have that. And we had an offer to do some conservation writing for, for a year through the Grand Canyon Wildlands Council. I'm, I'm the senior ecologist for that organization. And that gave me the opportunity to begin to focus attention on the whole region. Grand Canyon National Park is an island of protected habitat, but it's within a, a sea of landscapes that are a variable level of protection. That opportunity opened up doors for me to be able to begin to organize conservation tension on the, on the region, not just the park, but the entire region, and better uh, understand how the park played a role in the, in the distribution of life and uh, migration patterns and movement patterns of, of wildlife. And also opened up the doors on understanding the elevation gradient, which is a really critical uh, feature of this environment. San Francisco peaks at 12,600 feet, that high elevation landscape is quite unique in the, in the region and dropping down to a very low desert in the, in the bottom of Grand Canyon. Right, so then you invited a number of folks together. They were predominantly held there at the museum. Interestingly, that was when you asked if I would come. Yes. Uh -huh. And that was a, a real honor and a privilege, but it was rather instructional for me, enlightened me to the possibilities of landscape scale conservation and how it integrated in with other parts of northern Arizona, broader region. Hope I've uh, carried quite a bit of that forward along with the Babbitt family these years. Then you were active with the Wildlands Council and done some pretty cool projects with them. One I, I remember was Lee's Ferry. Among the, the many habitats, that are in, we have uh, about 85 different ecosystems here in northern Arizona. Those that are critically important to sustaining maximum biodiversity are aquatic habitats and therefore we've spent quite a bit of time focused on riparian restoration and we're still doing that through the Wildlands Council. In that we take portions of river landscapes, sometimes uh, spring habitats, and we're able to secure funding to be able to uh, come in, provide the land manager with support for restoration of those habitats. We did a project at Lee's Ferry beginning in 2001 where we took a tamarisk infested 10 acres of shoreline there and transformed it into almost 100% natural native vegetation. That's and then monitoring that over time to learn the lessons that we needed to about how to do that in more remote settings. Strange things happened out of that study. For example, we found that very quickly the bird fauna responded to the restoration projects, but even after 15 years, the mammals, small mammals, rodents and whatnot, have not responded to the treatment. So that's, that's interesting. Uh, we've taken the lessons learned there upstream from Lee's Ferry to minus six mile, where there's a patch of about seven acres of, of tamarisk. Did the same thing up there in a remote setting. Quite the adventure there, because we hand cut this forest of very dense tamarisk and then burned the flash and replanted it with native vegetation. So we've got a couple of those efforts under our belt. We also did the same with Big Springs Complex up in northwestern Arizona called the Pacoon Ranch there. The landowner had taken his 80 acres that had been used for livestock, not only cattle, but also ostrich ranching. He had uh, sold the land to the BLM. The BLM came to us and asked if we would coordinate restoration on it. And so that was a five-year project to turn 
a pretty devastated piece of ranch land into a, a jewel of riparian habitat. I think somewhere in there, though, you focused on springs. From a landscape scale perspective and understanding how everything weaves together and so on and so forth, you went right to the source. So as the director of the Spring Stewardship Institute at the museum here in Flagstaff, our mission is to improve understanding of springs as ecosystems, not just their hydrologic function, but also their biological functions, and improve stewardship and care of, of those habitats. Springs in arid regions especially are just, they're, they're magnets for life, they're hotspots of biodiversity, they're quite abundant. We have about 10,500 springs reported in Arizona so far. That has 25,000. Utah has about 15,000. So these are really abundant features, but they're very poorly understood, very poorly managed. And I serve on a federal advisory committee advising the Secretary of the Interior as to how to manage Grand Canyon, Glen Canyon Dam. And that's a very slow process. We have almost 30 stakeholders, states, tribes, agencies, and it takes decades to get a real substantial change in management. Uh, implemented. You might have heard of the planned floods in Grand Canyon. That's taken 20 years to get that that program uh, in place. Kind of butt in the chair, sitting there meeting after meeting after meeting, bringing up the same point, but eventually the concern can get registered. Very slow process. With springs, it's typically just a couple of voices. The land manager, maybe a, one or two federal agencies might step in, ecological advisors, very few voices, and you can accomplish great conservation with in a very short time frame there. So springs are really a great place to be able to focus attention, especially because nobody else is doing it. And these are just great places to be able to advance conservation. What are some of the fundamentals to management of springs that come to your mind? Some of the major challenges we face at springs management are that fences are down. Fences that were well installed, that are designed to keep livestock maybe away from the source, which is usually a hot spot of biodiversity, keep the cows just away from the source, but you know, make sure they have, they have water. If the sl- spring is coming out of a slope, building a stepping stone trail to the source, if, because people are often taking the water out of the source area, but making sure you're not eroding the hillside. Very simple uh, measures can often have really great conservation value. Have you had to do any projects where you were restoring the vegetation and habitat itself at Springs and start them over, so to speak? At the Pakun Ranch, the landowner, the previous landowner there had excavated every source. So we had 10 pools of water that were all berm ponds. Had been invaded by cattails. He had introduced an alligator into one of the nicest swimming holes in all of northern Arizona. The alligator grew to be nine feet long. Clem was quite a challenged... Um, individual still is. It took three expeditions with an alligator hunter to actually catch Clem and deliver him to the Phoenix Herpetological Gardens where he's still mean as a snake. I think it's a consequence of having to eat bullfrogs and coot uh, your whole life. Anyway, we got Clem out of there. Then we're faced with the enigma. So this is a highly altered landscape. What should we do? And our decision there was, well, we want flowing water, we want open water, we want uh, wetlands. And therefore, let's just cover these pools in and see where the water goes. And we did that. And the water, the hydrology is quite unusual there. The the water ends up flowing in a couple different directions. But the water generally goes back into a drainage system that had been dry for 120 years. And we knew that that it formerly was perennial because we had travertine in there. Travertine is a flowstone. So um, really great opportunity to put all that information together, take the environment, bring it back kind of a, a zero state there, compare it with other springs in the landscape. We knew what vegetation should be there, brought those species in from local stock and replanted the vegetation there. 
and turned it into a, a real jewel of riparian habitat. Are there any other examples that come to your mind of restoring springs? We're working on a project on the museum property right now to restore Coyote Springs, which again has been used for, had been used for grazing for quite a long time. Now it's because it's within the city limits. It's got a situation in which the water is being used for support of wetland habitat. So we're engaged in a project that will bring in the Hopi tribe and do restoration on the on that spring. We're also working with the Hopi tribe and the National Forest Service to do springs restoration in Kaibab National Forest and Coconino National Forest. So Larry, bring this all back to how all this fits together at a landscape scale. I mean, where are we headed since the 90s when things like Wildlands Project and others were starting to talk about landscape scale conservation? We've all experienced a lot of great things that head us in that direction. So where are we today? From the symposium that we held in, in the late 90s with you and, and others, we realized that landscape management decisions are based on a couple different things. Certainly there's the economics, the, the social interactions, but it's often the case that managing agencies and sometimes uh, other organizations are, are making their decisions based on individual species. Rather than managing for all species in the landscape, it's typically individual species that are endangered that get the attention. That really limits the fullness of the management effort. From our symposium, we identified uh, seven groups of species that we recognized were, were either important in management decision-making or had been neglected in management decision-making and therefore needed to be kind of identified. And those groups are obviously the species that are endangered, federally listed or state listed species. Those that are endemic or unique to the landscape, those that are exotic, some of those uh, non-native species are playing big roles, species like tamarisk. Species that have been extirpated, meaning removed from the landscape, no longer in the landscape, but not yet extinct. Species that are actually extinct because their role is a kind of a shadow role. If you were in Buffalo Park 150 years ago, you probably would have been quite concerned about the possibility of jaguar attacking you. And jaguar existed in those days right in Flagstaff, all the way up to the south rim of Grand Canyon. That was probably the northern limit of the of jaguar range. And certainly you would have been concerned with grizzly bear and wolf. Those species are all gone. And those species play a enormous role in shaping through trophic cascades, the whole structure of the landscape, including even the geomorphology of the landscape. So extinct species are uh, exert a kind of a shadow influence. The absence of wolves means that we have more coyotes, and that has lots and lots of implications for not only grazing practices uh, are, are influenced, but also wildlife. The other groups of species are those that are economically important, meaning game, big game species or species that are doing damage to, uh, economic damage to the landscape, from beetles to non-native elk, for example. And then lastly, those that are ecologically important, keystone species that are, that are playing a large role in the landscape. And some of those include things like ponderosa pine, and which are really abundant species here. So we began to look at the landscape in terms of the, those groups of species and then looking at management decision-making in relation to that whole suite. And we identified a large number of species in the landscape that fall into those various categories and then began sorting out the ecosystems by how many ecosystems had which species uh, characteristic of them and the role that they might play in management decision-making. And then with that also was the connectivity of all these things. And it was certainly something that Babbitts could focus on with regard, for example, to fence lines and roadways. You know, I remember one day driving out past what we call Blue Chute towards the Grand Canyon and going through a portion of the CO Bar Ranch and there was some pronghorn on one side of the, of the highway. And anyway, and it was really cool. Well, the next day, 
I went back out, going to the same area the next day, and they were on the other side of the highway. And it was real obvious, you know, the number and the buck that was there and so on. So it was clear they were the same. But I'd always been told that uh, pronghorn don't cross highways or roads. And so here they had to cross the highway. In this particular area, there were no right-of-way fences along the highway. Timing-wise, it was interesting, but ADOT had called Arizona Department of Transportation requesting that Babbitts look at putting some right-of-way fence up. It was one of the few places that needed to still have some right-of-way fences put up. And I thought, wow, here, we just saw these, you know, I know these antelope crossed right here. doesn't have a right-of-way fence. Now we're being requested to put right-of-way fence up. Just timing, just coincidence of it all. And anyhow, so we had a great opportunity to think through that. And the Babbitt family decided to put south side of that highway basically into a conservation area. And then on the north side of the highway, it was still going to need a fence line. But we built it a little over 100 yards away from the highway and built it so that antelope could cross underneath it. It was very successful with telemetry data that it maintained that corridor from winter and summer range for the antelope. It's been one of the great simple but effective and good projects that I remember that Babbitts has been a part of. From that, we developed what we call goat bars. And they were PVC pipes that we put on the lower strand of the fence lines. We've done thousands of miles, I suppose, that they now have them from Texas all the way up to Canada. There's some humility that comes along with this landscape scale conservation work. I'm sure you have plenty of stories. I did want to tell you that uh, with all the work on the antelope and putting goat bars up and fence line work and all that, a number of years later, after being very motivated to put the PVC pipe up and get groups of people involved and surely appreciate the Arizona Game of Fish and all the folks to, with them that participated. I happened to be north of Wapaki National Monument. I was by myself and I was walking out across the pasture. We were doing some golden eagle work there. and There was some cameras out and I was collecting the, the chip. And a, a buck antelope stood up about 200 yards in front of me. I thought, wow, that's pretty cool. Anyway, so I still kept doing my work there and was walking towards it. And it very slowly started to walk away from me, but there was no urgency or anything. But it was headed right towards the fence line that we had fully goat barred between Babbitt Ranches and Wapaki National Monument. And I thought, wow, I'm actually going to get to see an antelope use these, one of these goat bars out in the middle of nowhere. You're not going to really actually see them using those goat bars unless you see some tracks afterwards underneath. I'm going to get to watch. And anyway, so I kept walking out towards the pronghorn, and it kept walking away. Shortly, it started into a little trot and started heading off a little bit quicker and all that. Wow, this is really going to be something. It's headed right to the fence. There's the goat bars. And I'm going to, this is really something. So I watched and I watched, and all of a sudden, that antelope went right underneath the fence between two goat bars. <laughs> I thought to myself, you know, there's a pretty good lesson here. So what can we say about this when it comes to landscape-scale conservation? Well, the American pronghorn is a really incredible animal. It's just such, a, such an icon of the, of the Southwest. You know, Billy, there were 80 species of pronghorn in that family over the last 10 million years here. Uh, five species during the Pleistocene uh, within the last 100,000 years, and now we're down to one. And so it's a great example of, of a very deep lineage that conservation really matters for, because to lose that uh, species means we lose that entire family with this long uh, evolutionary history here. And so kudos to you for all the work you've done uh, to try to encourage these creatures to a greater level of security and safety. The populations, they are being divided by highways. Uh, they're uh, genetically different on two sides of the major highways in here in northern Arizona, which is 
kind of an important deal. Bad fencing practices that uh, keep barbed wire on the lower strand have really had a big consequence to the population structure. And the numbers are way down for a number of reasons, possibly again related to changing predator behaviors. Pronghorn go under fences, they can't jump. And uh, that's a real characteristic of the group. Therefore, proper fence is everything. And like so many wildlife species, they're very, very slow to learn. Perhaps in coming generations, they'll take more advantage of the gold bars, and we hope they do. Males especially are slow to learn, as we all know. They may have to learn from the females and even the young. Yeah, there seems to be some patterns that are handed down through generations, and as they learn, they'll, they'll start teaching them. Anyhow, well, so with all of that, there's a, a lot of other things that we need to learn about doing landscape scale conservation, and they're not all science-oriented. And largely, it's about relationships of all kinds, as well as communication structures and integration of horizontal and vertical disciplines. You've got all the basic researchers from entomologist to big game to avian. At some point in time, that information has to be synthesized in a way that the managers who have the responsibility for their management actions put in place either projects that are larger scale or just decisions that affect the landscape. And of course, that information at some point in time is being handed up to the policymakers and those folks, and that's what they do is work through the social structures and our various processes to come up with policies. And in some ways, it's not getting easier. Climate change seems to be one of the bigger issues today where you have lots of basic researchers in uh, various uh, ways learning and understanding about climate and modeling and, and uh, you know, learning understanding about the possibilities from, from, from the impacts of increased temperatures and so on. How do we navigate all these different types of things when it comes particularly to landscape scale? And in this case, it may be even larger. With regards to climate change, northern Arizona is the premier place to study that subject. We have an elevation gradient of almost two miles from the bottom of Grand Canyon to the top of the San Francisco peaks. We have the opportunity, in many ways, to do space for time valuations because climate here is controlled by elevation. Rainfall, precipitation, humidity, temperature, all influenced by elevation. And so as you move across elevation, you can go to different climates. And if you want to see what a more arid climate looks like, drop down an elevation. If you want to actually do experiments with individual plants at, uh, and their responses to climate, plant them at different elevations here in a common garden context, as, as Tom Whittem is doing it uh, through NAU, and harvest the information. It's such an ideal place to be able to study this topic. The topic was recognized by C. Hart Merriam in, in 1890. He was basing his work on uh, Alexander von Humboldt's analysis of a volcano that sits right on the equator in Ecuador, where in 1802, von Humboldt looked at vegetation across elevation, the very first understanding of climate relations in terms of vegetation and habitat. So um, we've got this incredible opportunity here in northern Arizona that we really haven't taken as much advantage of as we need to. Having common gardens set up for cottonwoods and is one really great step forward because we have cottonwood trees across a lot of the elevation gradient here but we have many plant species uh, trying to understand what's going to happen with ponderosa pine how many degrees temperature change are we away from losing ponderosa pine on the colorado plateau not very many a few degrees and the change will happen through wildfire so that's the vehicle through which climate change happens here and what replaces the ponderosa pine will be the species that come in as weeds mostly perhaps juniper, but it's probably going to be grassland, weedland, uh, as we can see from many of the fires we've uh, been looking at here. We've got this 
incredible opportunity to understand it better. We don't have much time because climate change is happening even as we speak. From some of the curatorial work at the museum, we're trying to put together the elevation ranges of every species of insect that we come across. Ants, we're discovering new species coming into the landscape. All of those are coming from Mexico. All of them are coming from the south rather than from the north, meaning that increased temperature is affecting the ranges of insects, birds, plants, uh, even mammals. Javelina. Javelina are wild pigs to most people. It's a different family, but there are three species in the New World. The collared peccary is the one we have here. It's steadily moving north. We've got one record from north of the Colorado River already. And so they're moving across the landscape, coming down to low elevations. They're such tough animals. These are animals that are incredibly well adapted to desert environments. They can eat prickly pear pads with all the spines like lettuce. Perfectly comfortable chewing right through a prickly pear pad. If you've ever tried, it will not save your life if you're dying of thirst in the desert. But they're perfectly happy with them. Javelina travel in big herds, so the social component is, is interesting to look at there too. How does climate change affect the social structure of some of the creatures that we're, we're, we're seeing respond to it? Javelina are pretty common in Flagstaff now. That's a new phenomenon. Another very interesting species to arrive in the landscape are Quatamundis. Quaddies. We had one record at Walnut Canyon 80 years ago, 70 years ago. Now they're found right in Flagstaff. They're moving northward. We've got a couple of road kills from fairly far north of Flagstaff, and again, one record up near Grand Canyon. So that's a Central American raccoon relative uh, steadily expanding its range in response to having more habitat and more opportunity for living in, in these altered landscapes, especially urban landscapes. As we begin to develop the lands around the highways and along the highways, that, that opens up patches of habitat more productive than the, perhaps the pinyon juniper or ponderosa pine forest that they've replaced. So the rangelands that Babbitt Ranch manages are tremendous. Frankly, Billy, the, the, the health of the, of the grasslands as we drive north on 89 are wonderful. It's, it's so impressive to see healthy rangelands as you drive through that landscape. It's just fantastic. Those rangelands support a wide array of species, small mammals, uh, many invertebrates, host of mesocarnivores and some larger predators. A number of raptor species, for example, prey in those lands. Swainson's hawk, golden eagle, great, fantastic birds. One thing we've discovered in the last 25 years now is that there's a migration route for raptors across Grand Canyon from Grand Canyon to the San Francisco peaks, across lots of Babbitt Ranch land. And those are birds that are migrating. On a good day in September, you can go to Lipen Point on the South Rim and see up to 10 different species of hawks and vultures and sometimes even owls coming up, spiraling up on the thermals out of Grand Canyon. They reach the rim, they look around, they see the San Francisco peaks and head straight for it. That's their landmark. It's a beautiful thing to be able to see, and it's like a surprise on the face of every hawk that comes up. And these, these hawks are coming up at a rate of sometimes one per minute. So it's a tremendous uh, migration process that's going on there. And the health of those populations as they move south, they need a good prey base. They need to be able to find mammals and small birds and, and insects on the ground. Some of them, sparrowhawks, for example, feed on grasshoppers a lot. So seeing the, the health of the rangelands as we drive north on 89 now is just really, really moving because that means that th this migration can be supported by good management of the rangelands. Uh, the opportunity to better understand how to restore soils in rangelands is a big topic. We have great opportunity with the museum and with Babbitt Ranches to study that. Part of the museum landscape there was used for farming 100 years ago, and the, frankly, the, the farmlands have never recovered. And understanding why soils don't recover is part of our inquiry here. The farmed lands develop kind of a, what's called a disclimax association of weedy species, sunflowers, 
plants that are actually quite toxic to the landscape. The unfarmed lands are dominated by blue grama, beautiful grass that is incredibly important to, to rangeland health. And yet the boundaries between the blue grama and the disclimax weeds don't change over a century. So what does it take to actually convert or restore the uh, disclimax soils into healthy grasslands? We have good opportunity to do controlled studies there and perhaps apply that to other rangelands. One of the really great things about Flagstaff is that at the turn of the last century, we had people like John Leslie Powell, like C. Hart Merriam, Teddy Roosevelt, who came right to Flagstaff to go hunting on the North Rim. We had Gifford Pinchot. We had John Muir here. They all knew each other. They all were concerned with the same issues that we're concerned with today. How can we best uh, create a sustainable lifeway for in northern Arizona and preserve these incredible natural wonders that we have? All those people knew each other. All of them talked to each other. All of them met your ancestors, Billy. And from those conversations, we have modern American conservation. We have sustainable ranching as a concern. We have conservation ecology as a, as a concern, bringing together all these different fields of genetics and population dynamics and landscape connectivity, bringing those into focus here. Billy, frankly, what you're doing is assembling, recapitulating that information and bringing it to bear on management, which is just so impressive to all of us. So I personally thank you for your leadership and taking these lessons into the next generation. Well, look, Larry, thank you for all you do for a great many people, not just in northern Arizona, but across this country. You have set uh, an extraordinary example of just being disciplined in your thoughts and in your ways and how you've been thinking and ultimately where your heart has been and where your passion lies. And you've just stayed true to that in such an extraordinary way that rubs off on everybody. And it might be a butterfly net and tweezers one day, and it might be, you know, a presentation with some, some PowerPoints or something on another day, but at the same time, it all just flows through everybody, and they're greatly inspired by you and your work, what it means to our future generations. So thank you very much for some reason or another asking me to come to those meetings in the 90s when... I didn't even know really anybody else there with a business degree going to work for Babbitt Ranches. And what that spawned in me was really something very special to me today. Thank you, Larry. You've been listening to Discovery with Babbitt Ranches, a monthly podcast exploring all things cowboy essence in land stewardship, conservation, science, agriculture, recreation, business, and community. I'd like to thank our supporter, the Museum of Northern Arizona, celebrating the Colorado Plateau since 1928. Our guest has been Dr. Larry Stevens, an evolutionary ecologist with the Museum of Northern Arizona Spring Stewardship Institute, the museum's curator of ecology and conservation, and longtime science advisor to Babbitt Ranches and the Landsward Foundation. Through our efforts of learning and understanding, Babbitt Ranches, a family business and pioneering land company, raises livestock manages natural resources, promotes science, and participates in the broader community in order to join, share, and do the very best we know how. I'm Billy Cordasco.